Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Haunted Collection with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector, Kevin Kane, here to bring you a couple of more chilling stories, some of my favorite ghost stories. This evening, I've picked two wonderful ghost stories right here from my home state of Alabama, But before I do that, I thought I would uh, share with you some of the happenings that go on here at my house. A lot of people, because I collect haunted items, they ask about what kind of experiences I have here. Because since I have over 200 haunted items in my home, it must be like a paranormal party here. And it kind of is. There have been little knocking sounds... One night I heard uh, my closet door open and shut by itself. I was alone in the house when it happened. When I walked to my bedroom to check it out, there was no one there. I have an old doll from the 1920s, and I used to have it sitting in the doll room across the house. One night I woke up and I heard what sounded like... 1920s music like something a clapper girl would dance to. I shook my head. I thought maybe I was still half asleep, but I was wide awake and still I heard the music playing. I thought about that doll because I just received it the week before and I wondered if it had something to do with that haunting music I heard. So I climbed out of bed and walked out of my bedroom. The music kept playing. I started across the house, and when I reached the room where the dog was, the music faded away. I opened the door and looked, and not a sound came from the room. I turned on the light, and there sat that doll in the chair, just kind of facing me. I never heard that music again, but I wondered if that was maybe her spirit letting me know she was there. The prior owner had reported the doll moving around on its own, but I haven't seen that yet. A few of my guests have seen it move, but it hasn't done that for me yet. But still, that music, I'll never forget it. There was also a time when I was starting to bed one night, and I was turning out the lights to go to bed. As I stepped out, or started to walk out of the great room, where my TV and everything is, I turn around and look back toward my office area, just in time to see the image of a little girl skipping away from me with her back to me. She had long braids and was wearing a dress. She looked to be maybe around the age of six or seven. She skipped off into the shadows and disappeared into my office room. I followed after her and called to her, but when I flipped on the light in the office, there was no one there. I have many dolls that are said to have the spirits of children attached to them, so perhaps maybe one of them was starting to play as I was going to bed. Sometimes I've heard little giggles in the house. 
I've had the faucet cut on and off in my bathroom by itself. I've heard pots and pans rattling in the kitchen. One day I came home from work to find all of my kitchen chairs pulled out from the table as if someone had been sitting around the table having a conversation. Perhaps it was some of my spirits visiting with each other. Who knows? The cat, Maddie, she loves to sit and stare at things that I don't see. She'll sit there and stare and tilt her head from side to side with interest as if she sees someone in front of her. Someone that I don't see, but I'm pretty sure that she is seeing something. The spirit world is very mysterious and very strange. It's the unknown. And we often wonder what it's like over there, but I think sometimes we get a little peek every now and then. And that's why, my friends, that sometimes you might just catch a glimpse of a ghost if you look carefully enough. Sometimes ghosts leave their marks just like these two stories I'm about to share from you that come straight from Alabama. The first one is very famous here in our state. I don't think there's a person who lives here that hasn't heard this story before. And it was told elegantly by author Catherine Tucker Wyndham. May she rest in peace. And she did pass away several years ago. But her stories that she left behind were quite amazing and historical. This place she told about that I'm about to share with you, I've visited it a couple of times, and let me tell you, when you see it, it does give you a little chill down your spine. Perhaps one day you might visit it and see for yourself. This story is called The Face in the Courthouse Window. Since 1878, there has been the picture of a man's face so indelibly stamped on a window of the Pickens County Courthouse that it looks as if a photographer had snapped his lens and made the likeness on the glass pane. But it was no human photographer who reproduced that countenance which reflects the anguish and terror filling the heart of a man who knew that he was face to face with violent death. The courthouse in Carrollton was burned to the ground on Thursday morning, November 16, 1876. Fire broke out in several places at the same time, and for this reason the blaze was held unquestionably to be the work of an incendiary. The burning of the courthouse unleashed an emotional torrent that swept away both patience and reason. The courthouse was more to the residents than just a seat of county government. For them, it was a symbol of their defiance of Yankee authority, sturdy evidence of their determination to overcome defeat. The original courthouse had been burned by Yankee troops under the command of General John T. Croxton on April 5, 1865. It was a senseless burning, serving no military purpose, and it infuriated and embittered the residents of the county. In those days following the Civil War, the task of rebuilding the courthouse seemed impossible. There was no money. Materials were scarce and expensive. 
skilled labor was difficult to find, yet somehow the courthouse was rebuilt. Even the occupying federal troops who were camped in Carrollton during the post-war years must have been impressed by the achievement. To the citizens whose work and sacrifice had rebuilt the courthouse, the building represented a restoration of law and order. It was important to their sense of stability as well as to their pride. Then, less than 12 years later, after their first courthouse was burned by the Yankees, the residents of Carrollton watched helplessly as their second courthouse, the one they had struggled so hard to rebuild, was consumed by fire. It was almost more than they could bear. As time went on and nobody was able to point the finger of justice as any suspect, the citizens of Carrollton became uneasy and began to criticize the officers of the law for not finding the criminal. They demanded that the sheriff produce the person who had burned the courthouse so that they could sleep easy in their beds at night without waking frequently to see if they smelled something burning. The sheriff realized that he must find a suspect if he possibly could. Henry Wells, a Negro who lived near the town, had a bad name. His temper was high and he had been involved in several fights. It was rumored that he always carried a razor. Nobody really saw him set fire to the courthouse, but he had been in town early on the morning when the fire occurred and rumors connecting him with the burning began to circulate, especially when no other suspect could be located. In spite of the fact that there was only vague circumstantial evidence against him, Wells was arrested on four counts. Arson, burglary, carrying a concealed weapon, and assault with intent to murder. Wells swore that he was not guilty and was being wrongly accused, but in a group of men gathered about the square on the sultry afternoon of his arrest, feeling against him ran high, and with the aid of some corn whiskey, it ran higher until it reached a dangerous pitch. The air on that afternoon was oppressively humid. In a black, ragged cloud west of town, the rumbling of thunder lent an additional menace to the already ominous situation. Men began milling about, demanding immediate action against Wells. Soon, someone produced a rope, and hasty plans for hanging him at once were made. In an effort to save him from the excited crowd, the sheriff hid Wells in the garret of the new courthouse. But his whereabouts were soon discovered, and bent on vengeance, the angry horde closed in on the courthouse, ready to break down its doors if necessary to reach their prey. Wells knew why they were there, but he went to the garret window, his face gray with fear, and confronted them defiantly, shouting at the top of his lungs, I am innocent! If you kill me, I'm going to haunt you for the rest of your lives. And as later events proved, he did. Just as the bloodthirsty crowd was about to get into the building, a bolt of lightning illuminated Wells' tortured face behind the window pane. 
The hot, close atmosphere of the afternoon had been the prelude to a short but severe thunderstorm. And Henry Wells' picture, caught by the lightning, they say, has remained imprinted on the garret window of the Carrollton Courthouse from that day to this. Accounts vary as to how Wells actually met his death. As one story has it, the lightning killed him. Then, sobered by this event, the crowd dispersed. Satisfied that the Almighty had meted out just punishment to a criminal. Another version of the tale is that the lightning flash alarmed the mob, but not enough to stop them from hanging their victim. At any rate, everyone agrees that this was the last night of Henry Wells' life. The next morning, a calm day, after the tumultuous night, a member of the lynching party was passing the courthouse. He glanced up at the window where he had seen Wells looking out the night before, and he turned pale with fright. He rubbed his eyes and, silently cursing the corn whiskey he had drunk the night before, he looked again, and again he saw the face of Henry Wells peering down at him. He knew that Wells was dead, and he began to scream that the devil had come to haunt him. His screams brought other people to the scene, and they too saw the face of Henry Wells, distorted by fear, but an unmistakable likeness, looking down at them. The face was still there the next day, and the next, and the next. Hundreds of people came to gaze in awe and disbelief at the eerie likeness. The sheriff was particularly upset by the accusing face. He was often seen carrying buckets of water up the steep stairs to try to wash away the symbol of a town's guilt. But he only succeeded in making the picture more clearly defined. No amount of scrubbing, not even with gasoline, would remove the image from the window pane. It is still there plainly visible on the lower right-hand pane of the garret window. On at least one occasion, some people say, every window pane in the Carrollton courthouse was broken during a severe hailstorm, except the pane with the image of Henry Wells on it. That one remained intact. There was even a time or two when they replaced the window pane entirely, putting in a new glass. But within 24 24 hours of each time, the face reappeared, just as it was before. And on stormy nights, some people swear they can hear Henry Wells' cries coming from the twisted mouth of the face in the window. I am innocent. If you kill me, I'm going to haunt you for the rest of your lives. And that, my friends, was the face in the courthouse window. You can visit that courthouse in Carrollton today and you can take a look at that face yourself and make your own decision as to whether the story is true. But i got to tell you, that face is quite uncanny. I've seen it myself twice. And there is no explanation. 
There's even a projector there if you want to put in a quarter and take a look through it and get a close-up look at that face. But let me tell you, even closer, it's quite scary. The courthouse in Carrollton is not the only place in Alabama with a ghostly mark on it, as my next story will teach you. This one takes place also in the western part of Alabama, in a county not too far from Pickens. This is the story called, Robert, I'll Never Leave You. Many communities in Alabama have local legends about strange images that have appeared on tombstones, mysterious markings with no logical explanations. There is, for example, the story from Red Level about a man who many years ago was riding horseback when his horse ran away, and the man's head got caught in the forks of a low-hanging tree limb. He was killed instantly. The image of a man hanging from a tree limb appeared on the rider's tombstone soon after his grave marker was put in place. Or so the story goes. Other areas have their own images of devil's heads and black cats and grinning skulls and such that have formed on tombstones. Each of these supposedly supernatural pictures has its own story, a story told and retold, changing gradually with each retelling. Some of these silhouettes are associated with romantic events, tragic love stories of long ago. But one of the best known of this type is the figure of the young girl that appeared on the tombstone of Robert Musgrove in Fayette County many years ago. The Musgroves were among the pioneer settlers in northwest Alabama moving there from the Carolinas with the final wave of immigrants in the 1820s. They brought their household goods and their farming equipment in wagons, jouncing along over the rough roads hewn through the wilderness. They came to stay. Some members of the family stopped in Walker County, while others continued their journey into northern Fayette County, where they settled along Luxapella Creek. Just as they were... There were differences in opinion among the family as to where to settle. There were sharper differences in loyalties when the war between the states came along. Many Musgroves served proudly in the Confederate forces, while many others remained staunch Unionists. It was a bitter and bloody time, with deaths from ambush, torture, hangings, house burnings, and beatings reported frequently, some not reported at all in those isolated wooded hills. The scars of that conflict had not yet begun to heal when Robert L. Musgrove was born in September 1866. As a boy, he heard stories of death and plunder when armed guerrilla bands enforced their own brands of justice, and he listened to the names of his own kinsmen cast as heroes and villains in those outrages of the Civil War. As did the other youngsters in his neighborhood, Robert helped his parents with the work on their farm, found time to roam in the woods and along the creek, and attended church at Musgrove Chapel every Sunday. Members of Robert's family were dedicated Methodists, and very soon after their arrival in Fayette County, they built a log church which they named Musgrove Chapel. 
The benches were uncomfortable, and the one-room building was hot in the summer and cold in the wintertime. But the Musgroves filled those rough benches to hear the word proclaimed, and if their bodies suffered, their souls were revived, or so they told Robert. Robert, looking down the benches at the Sabbath gatherings of Musgroves, wondered if his kin had in truth been involved in the atrocities he heard about. He tried to imagine what the men looked like when they were younger. Musgrove men, the old-timers recall, were invariably handsome. Most of them were tall and muscular, and they moved with the ease and grace peculiar to the outdoorsmen they were. They had ruddy complexions, dark hair, and bluish-gray eyes. It was a pleasing combination. As he grew older, Robert Musgrove became the handsomest of all the clan. On those rare occasions when he went to town, to Winfield or to Fayette Courthouse, or even as far away as Tuscaloosa, it is reported that every woman who saw him walking along the streets stared after him as long as he was in sight, and they would sigh softly and longingly. Robert, they say, never even noticed those stares or heard those sighs, though he, his friend said, could have been or could have had his choice of any beauty in northwest Alabama or northeast Mississippi, Robert wasn't interested in girls. His mind was on trains. Ever since he saw his first train, and there's a difference of opinion whether that was in Tuscaloosa or in Columbus, Mississippi, Robert Musgrove was obsessed with interest in steam locomotives. He purely fell in love with trains. I'm going to be a train engineer, he announced. Trains were all he ever thought about. An engineer was all he ever wanted to be. He wasn't interested in girls at all then, at least not seriously. As soon as he was old enough, maybe maybe even earlier since birth certificates and child labor laws had not been heard of then, Robert got a job on the railroad. He started as water boy for a crew laying tracks, but Robert didn't object to the hard menial labor. The only thing that mattered to him was that he was working on the railroad. He was as proud as a man could be when the Georgia Pacific Railway Company opened a line to Fayette in 1883. The first railroad in his home county. Until that time, Tuscaloosa and Columbus, Mississippi had been the nearest rail terminals to the county seat. Well, now some of my kinfolks can find out how important railroads are, Robert said. To him, railroads were still the center of his universe. Robert returned to his family home every now and then when he had time off from work. If his visits were on Sunday, he always joined his kinfolks and friends for worship services at Musgrove Chapel. After church, when worshipers gathered in clusters to talk a little while before heading home, Robert took pride in telling them about his railroad career. The St. Louis and San Francisco Railroad was Robert's road, the one he worked for. He had a good boarding place in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was assigned to run between Memphis and Armory, Mississippi. Robert worked as a conductor, brakeman, fireman, and after a good many years passed, 
he achieved his lifelong ambition and became a railroad engineer. They say Robert treated his engines as though they were living, loving things, as though the engines understood his respect and affection for them, and the engines responded to Robert's attention. His engines could do almost anything, they used to say, as though they were trained animals instead of masses of metal. After Robert became an engineer, he relaxed a bit and began diversifying his interests. He discovered, among other things, that girls are nice, (laughs) and he wished he had made that pleasant discovery earlier. Robert was already well into his thirties by then. For a while, Robert had many girlfriends. He was still quite handsome, as all Musgrove men were, and his career as an engineer made him even more attractive to women. So Robert enjoyed his popularity. He had a good time with his female admirers in Memphis, and he delighted in his feminine friends in Amory. There were also a good many young ladies between those two cities whose company Robert Musgrove treasured. He wasn't quite sure when or how it happened, but a beautiful young woman in Amory captured his heart. It wasn't long before he was thinking of marriage and a home and a family. These were brand new thoughts for him. He had lost none of his enthusiasm for railroading, but love had opened new vistas of joy. Miracle of miracles, the woman he loved also loved him. When he asked her to become his wife, she accepted. It was springtime, the loveliest spring Robert Musgrove had ever known. He acted like a love-smitten youngster. When he was at work, he would say, Listen to my whistle. Listen. Know what it's saying? It says, I'm in love. I'm in love. I'm going to blow it all the way from Memphis to Omri. He wanted the whole listening world to know about his happiness. Then, one dreary night in April 1904, Robert Musgrove was killed in a head-on collision of two trains between Memphis and Omri. A man on horseback brought the sad news to his family in northern Fayette County. Arrangements were were made to hold Robert Musgrove's funeral services at Musgrove Chapel, the church where he had worshipped in childhood. His body was sent by train from Memphis to Winfield, the nearest rail point to Musgrove Chapel. This was before the days of automobiles, so a caravan of wagons met the funeral train at Winfield to transport Robert's body and the contingent of his friends who accompanied it out to Musgrove Chapel. Robert's boyhood friends drove some of those wagons. As they waited at Winfield Station for the train to arrive, they talked about Robert and their memories of their good times together. Hard to believe Robert is dead, they would say. But if he had to die, it's good to know he died at the throttle of his train. He would have wanted it that way. When the train pulled into the station, the friends walked quietly to the baggage car, lifted Robert's coffin out, and placed it in the lead wagon. Then they spoke to the railroad friends who had come to his funeral and made sure that the visitors were comfortably seated in the wagons for the ride into the country. 
Among the mourners who came on that train was the young woman to whom Robert had been engaged. She rode to the church in the wagon driven by W.L. Moss. She was a beautiful young woman, Mr. Moss recalled years later. I'll never forget how she looked all dressed in black. Other people who met her remember thinking how tragic that she should be forced to wear the doleful black of mourning instead of the joyous white of a wedding dress. The small chapel was filled to overflowing that afternoon with people who cared about Robert and who grieved over his death. The altar area of the chapel was crowded with flowers, floral arrangements from the city mixed with fresh blossoms cut from the Fayette County yards. The preacher used the Methodist ritual for the burial of the dead, and he read the 23rd Psalm in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. And he talked about how life is like a railroad. Then the choir sang in the sweet by and by, and when the ring, when they ring the golden bells. After the choir finished, all the people went out into the graveyard with the preacher leading the way and the pallbearers walking slowly and solemnly behind him. After the pallbearers had lowered the coffin into the grave and the preacher had said the final words at the grave and the dirt was filled back in, most of the people left the graveyard and started home grieving about Robert. But there were still chores to do and life to live. The scattering of folks who loitered after the burial saw Robert's sweetheart kneel beside the fresh grave. She folded her hands and bowed her head as she remained motionless in that attitude of prayer for several minutes. As she arose, people standing close by heard her whisper the following words. Robert, I'll never leave you. Nobody remembers her name. Nobody who witnessed the sad drama ever forgot how she knelt at the grave or her whispered promise of eternal love. Several months after Robert's death, his family had an impressive granite marker erected at the grave, an eight-foot obelisk. Robert would have loved it. In the years that followed, worshipers at Musgrove Chapel and families who lived nearby noticed that periodically Robert's grave was cleared of weeds and fallen twigs, and always fresh flowers were put on the grave. The flowers were florist arrangements, not bouquets from local gardens. Well, that must be Robert's sweetheart. She must have been here, they would say. And they told again of the events surrounding Robert's funeral and how his sweetheart had whispered those words, Robert, I'll never leave you. Years passed and the periodic evidence of care for Robert Musgrove's grave continued. Then as time went by, some woman in the community noticed that there had been no fresh flowers on Robert's grave in a long time. She commented to a friend on the long absence of the flowers. Well, the friend replied, Just think how many years it's been since Robert died. His sweetheart must must be dead now, too. 
If she's not dead, she's far too old and feeble to visit the grave. She kept her promise for many years, though, didn't she? Then one Sunday in 1962, as worshipers were coming out of Musgrove Chapel at the close of the morning service, someone glanced over into the graveyard. What's that on Robert Musgrove's tombstone, she asked. It looks like a shadow of some kind. Several people prodded by curiosity walked into the cemetery to get a closer look. There on Robert Musgrove's tombstone they saw the distinct silhouette of a young girl. Her head was bowed and her hands were folded as if in prayer. The silhouette was so distinct that you could see the hair piled high on her head and the lashes curving over her eyes. That's Robert Musgrove's sweetheart, one of the older men in the group said. That's just the way she looked when she knelt on Robert's grave and promised she'd never leave him. I was just a small boy when I saw it, but I saw her and I heard her, and I'll never forget it. News of this strange image of the young girl on Robert's grave spread quickly throughout the part of Alabama, that part of Alabama, and curiosity seekers by the hundreds drove to the country churchyard. The invasion of strangers upset the Musgrove family, and they tried to remove the image from the stone, but though they scoured and rubbed and scrubbed, the image would not come off. Finally, they sent the tombstone to Birmingham for a stonemason to sandblast the figure from the granite. With the image gone, the unwelcome visitor stopped coming to the cemetery and talk in the community turned to other things. But the image returned, as plain as ever. Again, the story of the lover's promise was told, and again the throngs of strangers came to look and to wonder. The stonemason from Birmingham returned to clean the stone. When he left, the tall marker was as white and unsullied as the day it was put in place. With the figure gone from the tombstone, the crowds again lost interest in the grave. But, they say, the likeness of the grieving sweetheart slowly returned to the surface of the tombstone until once again it was as well defined as it had been the day it first appeared. And they still say, She loved Robert very much. Her love was as strong as her promise. And that promise she kept. Robert, I'll never leave you. You can still see that tombstone today if you visit the Musgrove Chapel Cemetery, but I do ask that you show respect and that you make sure to uh, respect the people of the church there and not crowd in on them. The story sort of faded away into history, but every once in a while it's revived, and we want to make sure it stays that way because it is an amazing story and it's an amazing symbol, a symbol of eternal love. And what a great way to end this this episode of The Haunted Collection. So, it's my time to go now, but as always, I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a, a great week, and be safe out there. Watch out for those ghosties, and as always, happy hauntings.